We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. joining us for this week's edition of the Truth Perspective. Today is March 5th, 2016. I am your host, Shane Lachance, and I am joined today by my co-host, Elon Martin. Hello. Harrison Kelly. Hi. And fellow SOT editor, Corey Schink. Hello, everybody. So today we are talking about brains. Mm, brains. So we'll be digging into both the brain's capacity as well as its automated nature. Uh, fortunately and unfortunately, the human machine comes equipped with highly self-regulated mechanisms. And these mechanisms can make life easy and functional, but these same workings also can lead to detrimental behaviors and perspectives. Uh, understanding the operation of these things and knowing how to navigate them can help in remapping or rewiring the brain towards a more aware existence that responds to reality rather than acting against it. And to that end, we'll be discussing some of the techniques found in cognitive sciences that can be applied to our personal lives, uh, but we'll also be getting into how they relate to seeing and understanding uh, events of global importance. So... I think um I think we're gonna kick off things by, you know, talking about the the more individual level and then we'll work into the more global perspectives. Um SOT is uh you know, we, we look at a lot of the cognitive sciences in order to understand ourselves and and uh how those processes can also uh relate to what's going on in the world at large. Um, you know, it's it's the microcosm versus macrocosm, and often the just the you know the the crazy nature of the world uh, is also found in our daily lives. So um, yeah, I think we'll start by looking at some of the um, tools that that we've discovered and uh, kind of investigate and research. Uh, one is uh one book that's that's been pretty useful i think has been uh redirect by timothy wilson and that kind of looks at the narratives that we um develop uh, often from from traumas but you know it it can be in normal everyday activity as well and the the tool that he utilizes or one of the tools that he looks at is the uh Pennebaker writing exercises and that's basically a deconstruction of the these narratives that we that we tell and um he's he's looking at specifically in a a, a trauma in trauma situations and often when you know these these type of events happen you know, it's hard to make sense of them. Um, there's they con they conflict with the the reality that we understand as 
safe and secure. And so, you know, there, there's there's a, a, a lack of meaning in it for us. Um, and we assign, you know, often unconsciously, uh, these narratives uh, that, that go along with it. And so the Pennebaker exercises are basically a deconstruction of of our of these narratives that we tell ourselves, and um, and in that in that process of of looking at the event of recounting it, um, we can kind of tease out what the meaning was for us, and uh, often rewrite the narratives that uh, that we've told ourselves. Um, I think that it, you know it's important when you think about this. Uh, you know, when you rewrite a narrative, uh, that that is you know, what you're doing is you're you're rewiring your brain consciously. You're consciously attending to these these experiences and you know what's left of them in your in your body because you know every experience from you know conception onwards programs us in a certain way. Um, you know, we have uh, different emotional systems in our body that are designed to keep us safe and to make sure that we survive. And so they're very alert and, you know, they're, you know, the entire bundle, I guess you could call the adaptive unconscious. It's been called the adaptive unconscious because it's always adapting to situations. Um, it's trying to, you know, figure out what it needs to do in order to survive. And it learns this largely through a process of association, you know, of what's good, what feels good, what's bad, and, you know, what can, uh, what harms you and what gets you, moves you forward in life. And, you know, when something really traumatic happens, you know, that, that your body takes that in and computes that sort of on an unconscious or subconscious level and can then, you know, it just can create habits or uh, create phobias or, you know, create all sorts of things that just trip you up in life. And by attending to that consciously and rewriting that narrative, you're getting in there and you're rewiring your brain, you know, you're rewiring your system uh, because all of these systems, um, they are wired together. They're very much a, you know, sort of a, you know, a separate organism in your body that, you know, can take over, you know, on a moment's notice. You just could be going along and then all of a sudden something could happen and you're triggered and, you know, you decide that, um, you know, you just, you feel an emotion that you didn't want to feel and, you know, you, you act on it. Uh, and it happens all day long. You know, everything that we do really uh, begins on an unconscious level, whether it's, uh, you know, just seeking sort of behaviors that we, we adopt in order to find, you know, warmth or food or shelter or love, you know, or safety, or if we want to turn on the TV so we can dissociate, so we can feel better about ourselves. A lot of these things are wired unconsciously. And so by sitting down and slowly rewiring, or rewiring our narratives, rewiring, rewriting them, we are able to take the wheel, you know, so to speak. Yeah, it's uh, we come across the saying, uh, neurons that fire together, uh, wire together. And, you know, you, you see that a lot in, in literature. And I think it speaks to this, uh, this uh, binding of associations that we have uh, with, um, you know, different events, um, things that may have happened to us. Um, particularly when when there's trauma, um, so you know when 9/11 happened, people were definitely wired to see uh, Muslims as as a threat, for example. 
Um, and you know, it, it's it's like an instinctive um, program that that's that's installed in us. And I think part of the issue involved in this is that we, many people, don't realize that uh, we are very much like machines, and there is such a thing as programming, and uh, and. PTSD and and various um, uh, forms of imprinting that have had these uh, these kinds of mechanisms set up within ourselves, and um, you know it's a scary thing. It can be, but it can also be empowering to realize uh, that you know we can look at them from a a distance um, using such exercises as the. Penny Baker exercises that you mentioned, Shane, and uh, and that we can give meaning to or new meaning to uh, these experiences and um, and have them form new associations, new pathways into our minds, into our brains uh, that allow us to see and experience possibilities uh, where perhaps there weren't any before. And. I think it's a you know a good question to ask ourselves is how much are we really consciously aware of you know what goes on in our day? Uh, so many things can happen, like you said, Elon, on a mechanical level. Uh, you know our bodies are pretty much wired for survival, and you know it's in our brains and you know the the quote unquote the reptilian brain, you know, for very primal emotions and for you know making sure that you get basic needs met and uh, that you're able to you know, function, move, you know, like you move your arm, you know, and that's, you know, just a, a part of your, your brain operating, you know, often reflexively. And then in the emotional arena, you know, with, uh, you know, seeking out uh, bonding uh, relationships, uh, just like our old mammalian ancestors do, you know, we have that part of the brain in there. But then, you know, what about our human cortex? You know, how often do we really, how often are we encouraged, uh, actually, to use that, to really think critically and to engage our minds in our daily lives and, you know, act with real intelligence, you know, to use our intellects to, to guide our actions, to, you know, to be curious and to, and to, uh, to seek answers to questions that we have. I think that, you know, it's, it's so easy because uh, it's for so long psychology has been mired in such, you know, mythology and Freudianism, you know, it really, it really took a, you know, a couple pretty bad turns there for a long time. And so, you know, this whole idea of the unconscious has been muddied. And so we aren't really, we aren't aware of how much our actions are conditioned by instinctual inheritance and by just basic mechanical reactions. But now that the science is out there, we can see that, okay, so those things are real, right? And they play a purpose in our lives and, you know, making sure that we can survive and we can act like good people or, or whatnot. But, they, uh, you know, the, these higher functions deserve much more attention. And it's uh, just living on autopilot, you know, function. You can pretty much function, live a normal life uh, completely asleep, just 100% asleep, not even really aware thinking that you're aware, you know, because you feel these emotions and everything, but they just are driving you. Well, it's, uh, you know, that, that, um, that normal life, it's really when, when we live in such a pathological 
world. It, it's it's really an abnormal life, and the double-edged sword here with the you know this automated self is that it is very useful, and you know we we wouldn't be able to survive without it. We wouldn't be able to you know um, to you know drive to work you know for an hour and and you know there, there's so many functions that that are useful about the automated self. However, when it's all encompassing and when it um, takes over our cognitive processes, when it takes over our emotions, you know, we we're basically machines, and and that le- that leads to a very um, meaningless. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people, um, you know, fe- walk around feeling like you know there's there's a hole inside them, like there there's a void. And I think in large part is because there's this lack of meaning. And really that's what, um, you know, if we get to the core of, of what Pennebaker was writing about or what his exercises are about, it's it's about finding meaning. And and you can't do that. The automated self can't provide meaning for itself. It, it needs to come from uh, more conscious processes. Well, the way I see it, um, this is a, as a kind of analogy if you think about yourself or, or someone you know and then like different standards of cleanliness, like you may have a roommate or someone and and you may notice something that kind of like bugs you and then and then you're like, oh, why is that person so messy? And then you'll talk to them and they just won't even have noticed it. And I'm sure that we can see those things in ourselves as well where um, like you, you might one day just suddenly realize that, let's say, um, a picture on your wall is crooked or something, and you, you realize that you hadn't noticed it for such a long time. Well, the thing about changing or re- reprogramming your, your mind and your brain, it's kind of like that cleanliness or that dirtiness or that, that um, skewed picture where you can't change it and you can't do anything until you first notice it. And otherwise, you're just going to be going through your life automatically. So you go through and the, you know, the dust is piling up and you just don't see it because you're busy with other things. But you're not going to get the room clean until you actually notice that the dust is there or that you, you know, you're not going to fix that picture unless you actually look at it and see that it's crooked. And so that's really the, like, you're not going to get anything until you notice that something's wrong. But that's and, and act on it, I think, because yeah. it, it, it's funny because this example that you give, because um, you know, I, I've been a fairly messy person in my <laughs> life, and one of the the ways that uh, I, it's just, it's just become apparent, you know, you get messier and messier and messier, and when you you may kind of see a little bit of your own messiness, but you deny it really by not acting on it, and then it, you you further push it out of, of your awareness. So once you start kind of like looking and, and seeing your own messiness and start acting on it, then it becomes more and more apparent the more and, – and you see it more. Mm-hmm. Uh, think that just makes me think about you know just programs that people might have in general, just program behavior. And the example that came to my mind was uh, workaholism. You know, they call it work, like workaholics. And I know that – I mean there's a rising – uh, mortality rate for people who are workaholics. Uh, they, they are people who die every year. Lots of people who die work themselves to death every year. And a lot, I mean, probably you could probably say a lot of it is because, I mean, they literally have to. I mean, that's just the corporate environment. 
that they're living in. But then, you know, from what I've read, there are a lot of people who that is so much a part of their identity. It's so much wrapped up into them that they will, you know, that it's, it entails the ignorance of their family and all other sorts of duties so that that is their prime motivation in life. And I think we all kind of know what that feels like to a degree, um, that compulsion to work where we feel like it's, and, you know, you have to move from one task to the other. You have to get this done, then this done, then this done. And, it's, you know, do you have time to sit down and think about it? No, of course you don't have time. Nothing will get done if you just sit down and, and, and you know, just take a moment to breathe and think. But, you know, this is a really good example, I think, of this, of some, of a system in your body that's gone haywire. You know, there's uh, uh, Dr. Yak. Pankset in his book Effective Neuroscience talks about uh, a dopamine system in your body that's, that regulates your seeking behaviors. And so these, you know, if you're constantly seeking some sort of something that isn't coming to you, you're constantly seeking something. It's like the holy grail that you're looking for and you think that it's in work, you know, that, or you, you feel like your body feels like there will be this release at some point finally, but you just keep working and working like that rat on the wheel you know, on the or the hamster on the little hamster wheel, and you don't notice it. You don't. Nobody points it out to you, and and then death is the result. I think that is a really dramatic example and a very tragic example. So essentially, like a workaholic has written themselves into this narrative for themselves about who they are and what they're doing, and so I don't necessarily think it's that people lack meaning in their lives. It's that they they have some kind of meaning in their life, but it's essentially and ultimately an unfulfilling meaning that they're pursuing and it's a, a narrative that goes nowhere so they're looking for that it's like the holy grail it's like a you you've written yourself into a search for the holy grail and you never find it yeah and that's that's that it's a dead end road and that shows in in life and what you get out of it and that is almost more like rather than search for the holy grail it's like a war against moby dick <laughs> yeah <laughs> well a couple of moments ago shane you shared with us your uh, propensity to be messy <laughs> and uh, not being a neat freak myself, but wanting some semblance of order, uh, I can identify. Uh, but um, along those lines, like, um, you know, you said quite simply, you know, until you've made that choice to clean up your room or, or your desk or whatever it is, uh, or to address something, you know, using your awareness uh, and acting on it. Um, I mean, until then, until that action occurs, uh, nothing really gets rewired, nothing really gets resolved in any way. And a little earlier, you mentioned the Pennebaker exercises and, and kind of redirecting uh, your awareness and applying meaning and purpose to things that, uh, that assumed only one type of meaning prior to that. So I guess this is more of a question has has anyone using those exercises in particular um found any success in uh rewiring themselves or or coming to a different place in their uh assigning of meaning to something in particular that uh, that was important or it may not have been a, a pennebaker exercise it could have been another form of cognitive uh, redirection and and work Well, it it seems to me like it's always really it's always helpful to to take what's occurred in your life and you know you 
to kind of see what steps you've taken, what your lessons, what lessons you learned, and to be really honest with yourself. And it seems to me like when I've done that in my life, um, that then naturally it seems like something clicks and you know what that next step should be. You know, okay, so either it, it opens it, it presents itself to you or you just all of a sudden you, you think, well, I could make, I could make this step now. You know, I could, I could try this out because, you know, I've been trying this and it hasn't worked or I've been doing this and it seems like this is actually what my, my calling is and I would love to try this. So it sounds, Corey, like what you're saying is that um, you, you used mentation or, or focus and thinking on, uh, on redirecting yourself and, and making decisions um, that have shown themselves to be more productive. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, especially, you know, with, with just the, with how confusing everything is in this world, you know, about with jobs and relationships and, you know, we all have our own issues and everything, but once you are able to put it into a narrative and kind of see your life as a movie, you know, you want you, when you start to see kind of your life as a movie, you think, well, what do I want this character to experience? You know, what is this next step in, what is the next scene? You know, what is, uh, what's coming next? And it, it starts to just, it starts to just gel together and you kind of start to see the, the, um, almost like the archetypal theme, you know, that's been running through your life and you start to look, I've been doing this, I've been banging my head against the wall in this way. And you kind of think, okay, so I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot here. And so now I can, you know, just open my eyes to this, uh, learn my lesson and plug it in and, you know, and move on. Well, but even to get there, uh, there's, there's still a, a struggle I think that we have to get into bef before we get to that point. So you mentioned movies. One movie that always comes to mind when having a discussion like this for me is Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon, which is one of my favorites. And I won't give too much about it, but just one of the basic premises of the movie is that it, it follows around a few different characters that experience the same thing, but it shows, it shows the events in that, uh, in that narrative from each of their points of view. And not just from their point of view, but also with the 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 white lies or the darker lies that they tell about about what they experienced. So you get some very conflicting kind of eyewitness accounts of these events that have taken place. Um, and so some critics that I've read of the movie, some reviews, you know, say it's a great postmodern movie that breaks down the notion of truth, and uh, which which is totally to misread the point of the movie because the the whole point of the movie is that there is truth. But we see it, we see and color it and change it to our own to our own purposes, and even unconsciously we do that we'll experience something and then because of the way that we've been programmed through our lives, because of the the ways in which we are used to seeing things or interpreting things, that will color the way that we remember the past and the way we tell our own story so it's really a, a just a great example of of the starting point for you know for people just in everyday life who haven't yet gotten to that point where they will even look at themselves and realize that they are not objective, that they're subjective, and that they have these things that they have to, uh, if, they're gonna, if they're going to be, um, you know, if they want to be objective, that they have to start looking at and to, to realize about themselves. Well, you know, Harrison, when you mentioned uh, Rashomon, um, I was reminded of a, a kind of experience I had as a, a young person. I'm no longer young. And... Uh, <laughs> Well, um, it was kind of an epiphany. It's kind of a, 
a strange experience, but um, it, it was uh, an experience that, that showed me that, um, that I had something to learn uh, with, with a little dot connecting. And basically it was this. I was um, a young man uh, walking, taking a walk one evening with a pal. I think we'd had a few beers. And um, we came across uh, someone we knew in the neighborhood who had this really um, small head and looked weird. And uh, people would make fun of her. And um, and I knew her because she was also the you know the, the the sister of a of a guy I was in Boy Scouts with. In any case, um, you know we said hello, we talked, uh, said good night, and I. I wondered why she was walking alone uh, by herself so late at night and um, and maybe was a little worried for her. Um, in any case, I, I, I had a good chance to look at her, the size of her head, and it reminded me of this uh, 1932 film uh, called Freaks by Todd Browning, uh, which is about, you know, these, these circus kind of, um, people with all kinds of malformations. And um, I remembered when watching that film that I had been curious about what these debilitating or, or strange uh, developments were in these people physically and had learned that they had uh, microcephaly. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, I, I pieced that together. My God, you know, this girl was the sister of a, of a friend, someone I went to Boy Scouts with, had microcephaly. And she was no longer this weird-looking girl who had walked around. She was quite nice, but she had uh, she had this condition, and uh, and my whole uh, my whole perspective um, of of her as a person for some reason had completely changed. It was an aha moment, and it, it doesn't sound like much uh, on the surface, but uh, but. Um, you know, just putting a, a few of these uh, these dots together, uh, not simply labeling her with this weird kind of uh, brush stroke, uh, made her um, uh, another made her whole to me in a way that she hadn't been before. She was not this kind of village freak, but she was a person who, unfortunately, had this condition that made her look really weird in, in normal terms and in, in average terms. And um, I thought about that a little earlier today when we were uh, preparing for the show and, and just having these pieces of knowledge uh, that breaks down uh, these assumptions that we make about other people, about ourselves, can open up a world of, um, of connectedness uh, uh, where there was none before, maybe. Yeah, these, um, you know, a lot of these instinctive programs and, you know, things that have really warped our mind, um, they they really do, um, you know, pull us away from other people and keep us from seeing, you know, another, the other person as a, as a genuine human being. And I'm, I was, I'm reminded of a, a story that a professor of mine told um, when I was in college and he uh he he was speaking about you know a um, previous work experience where he was a hiring manager 
and he had a a, a woman a woman who came in and applied for a job who was fairly overweight and um he he denied her application uh and his his manager came and said you know why did you, did you look at you know this this woman's resume was incredible he's like why why did you why did you reject it and he said well you know she she was she's a little heavy and um i didn't think that she'd be able to you know fulfill the job requirements because if she can't take care of her her weight you know she's not going to be able to uh to do to do this this job and the manager was just stunned with him and he said uh john you're a bigot and that completely shocked him and he 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 said oh, okay well you know i'll i'll look at look it over again and and he ended up hiring her and she was a you know she was a magnificent employee and that process of um basically being shocked and also some having somebody tell him you know this is what you're doing he thought it was more of a a, a practical decision he wasn't seeing himself as a bigot in that moment but it was uh it, it was life changing for him in that he was able to see um that one he was a, he was acting like a bigot he was being a bigot and that um you know, he wasn't seeing her as as a as a genuine human being and you know what her capacities were and you know it, it just kind of remind reminds me of 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 this process of you know uh having all these these biases that we're largely you know unaware of and you know we'll create these narratives around these biases you know saying well you know it's it's for practical reasons it's it's you know it's for this or for that and never really digging into the the issues and you know the the different false associations we have uh you know about about people and uh, about ideas and things well i think those are two kind of really great examples of just a basic process of you know rewiring or changing your brain or or um or even like positive disintegration because what happens is you're in in both of those stories uh Elan and your your professor there the, you were presented with a, a new piece of information that on the surface would uh would ordinarily or could be uncomfortable because it exposes something um something uncomfortable about yourself like an uncomfortable truth about yourself so like imagine being called a bigot well there's a few possible responses to that one which your your professor took but you could, you can easily imagine someone just hearing that and then immediately coming up with their narrative and sticking to it, right? So, oh, well, no, it's just a perfectly practical reason. I mean, she can't do the job. No, you're a bigot. Well, no, I'm not. It's a perfectly practical reason. And, you know, the, just the hard-headed stubbornness of sticking to it or um, or just, um, you know, because people don't like to think negatively about themselves. They don't like discomfort. Um, but but that process shows that I think that's really the essential part of of rewiring or changing your brain which is to be able to withstand that little bit of discomfort because most people, I think, can't. And we talked about this on uh, last week's Behind the Headlines when we talked about Dabrowski's positive disintegration. Uh, yeah, that reminds me of a Kurt Vonnegut quote. It's, I'm going to paraphrase it and butcher it in the process, but it's I, uh, he says that my soul is that part of me that knows when my brain isn't working. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and that just as an aside, that I think that exposes the just the one of the the wrong philosophical like basis of this whole idea of the brain that changes itself because that's a famous book about brain neuroplasticity, the brain that changes itself. But that's really a misnomer. Like that's not what's going on. It's not the brain that's changing itself. There is you, like the mind, which is changing the brain. There's an active part that is that is able to that has some kind of will in order to do something. It's not because if you think about a brain that changes itself. It's one part of your brain changing another part of your brain, and it's just this completely mechanical process that doesn't have – it has no direction to it. It has the, no differentiation between like, like a higher and lower in Dabrowski's terms. It's just this, oh, your brain's changing itself. It's like, oh, you're, you know, your, finger, your finger's wiggling back and forth. There's no meaning to it. So I think that – I just think that that's a, the wrong way to look at it. But, but. Well, I think that when you make that distinction, you also uh, – you open up the, the fact that it's a, it's a, it's a challenge – it's a struggle, and it's you, um, a higher part of you against a lower part of you that has to, and one of them, you know, has to, it doesn't necessarily have to win out in the end, but, you know, it's, it's a, you know, you know it, it's not easy. It's, it's something that takes a lot of time and patience. Well, <clears throat> that reminds me of uh, the Gnosis books by Moraviev. Uh, which is esoteric literature, fourth-way literature, and um, something that he beseeches the reader, uh, the seeker, to do is to burn. And what he means by this is that that you are uh, allowing, uh, for all intents and purposes, um, this kind of disintegration by uh, acknowledging to yourself... um, those things that are off about the way your mind and, and thinking and emotions are working. And, um, and there really is a physiological component to it. Uh, it you know, if you've ever uh, felt a certain amount of shame or remorse over something you've done or something's been pointed out to you that, uh, that makes you feel bad, for lack of a better definition, um, there is a sensation in the back of your neck, a heat, a sweating. Um, and, uh, and so he says, continue to feel that, continue to do those things that will, uh, create that sensation. Um, I don't know that it's, it's something that, uh, that you can, uh, necessarily seek out all of the time, but, uh, certainly being open or receptive to those experiences and to the feedback that would create such a sensation and a realization in yourself um, is, I think, part of what may help us to grow and to burn away those programs or associations or wiring that um, that is ultimately a part of our lower self. And uh, another part of the, that process that Morvif wrote about was um, when we're um, when we're experiencing you know, these. Uh, of intense emotions to keep them he called it keeping it below the neck and to not express it outwardly but to kind of sit with it and to to use to use your brain to use your mind uh to to understand you know what's going on uh to and that that can be like a, a transmutation of, of of those emotional energies you know, once we can kind of sit with it and, you know, and we're working with it while we're sitting with it and, and thinking about it and, 
you know, analyzing it and, um, you know, considering, you know, our, our, our different programs. And when we do that and, you know, we can, we can achieve like a, an aha moment where we, you know, we can understand, you know, what's going on. And, you know, that, that's very similar to the, the Pennebaker writing exercises. It's just, it's, it's, it's just, uh, talked about in, in different terms in different ways, I think. Well, maybe we can go to a clip as this is this is a recent example, um, a little bit of a few interviews that some guy did with some Trump supporters. Um, he's basically reading out some quotes to them. Um, I'll just well, let's just take them there. I don't want wanted to, to read you a couple quotes and kind of get your feelings on them and, and kind of see how you felt uh, about what he was saying. Sure. Anyone who sees and paints a sky green and fields blue ought to be sterilized. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's a lot of people that should be sterilized, according to Donald Trump, so sure. Can you read it to me one more time? Sure, sure, sure. How fortunate for governments, so now how good for the government, that the people they administer don't think. You look at the Democratic Party and they prove that. That's why I'm voting for Trump. He's got the world by the balls right now. I mean, he has a lot of money. He's very influential because of his money and what he's done with, like, you know, his empire. The more economic difficulties increase, the more immigration will be seen as a burden. Yeah, I mean, as soon as our our economic system starts improving, we don't have to worry about the immigrants anymore. They'll go away. Great liars are also great magicians. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, uh, I think that, you know, he's going to lie in any way, probably to, like, support the country, to keep the country going. There'll be good lies, you know? So you support everything that he's kind of said in this pamphlet here and in these quotes, right? Of course. Yeah. I'm a Trump fan. Because Trump, Trump said it. Do you support these quotes, then? You you support Trump. I support him. Yeah. I actually changed them, and they're all quotes from Hitler. You made this pamphlet and did that? Oh, my God. And I just replaced them in this pamphlet. I'd say you're lying to me. I, they are, though. <laughs> they're, they're quotes from Hitler. So do you do you still support Trump? Yeah, I, but I don't support Hitler. Well, but you support these quotes, all right? Well, if Donald Trump said him, I'd support him. <laughs> well, I was just trying to contain my laughter through all of that. I mean, it's, it's funny and really scary at the same time uh, to to <clears throat> see these people's reactions and just complete automation uh, well, you know, if Donald Trump says, it, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't support Hitler, though. You know, I mean, these, these are clearly fascist. Uh, they're not they're not just random quotes that he took from Hitler. They're they're pretty overt in their in their pathology. And you know, it's just remarkable to see, you know, how, how willing uh, people are able to kind of take them on uh, and and say, you know, it, it's if he supports that, I support it. Well, it it, it really shows. I think just some of the dynamics that we've been talking about. Um, well, first of all, there's the there's just the the tendency to to well, you've got these preconceived biases, these preconceived notions about reality and and life and the and the way you go about it, and then that acts as a filter on anything that comes in. So these people are Trump fans, Trump supporters. So in their minds, because they are Trump supporters, therefore everything that Trump says that they they agree with. So right there, there's just a complete automaticity, this it's mechanical acceptance of anything that Trump might say. So you could write anything and just say that Trump said it and they'd agree with it because there's no 
absolutely no discernment. Because any person with a, a working brain will will realize and know that not everything that their hero or anyone says is going to be true 100% of the time or that you should necessarily agree with it. You, I mean, you can I can theoretically imagine a smart Trump supporter, well, maybe not, but <laughs> who would... Who would say, okay, yeah, I'm a Trump supporter, but you know, he, you know, every once in a while he might say something I disagree with. I mean, that's the only, that's a reasonable position, right? But there's no reason whatsoever in in this. And so, even when they when they are confronted with the reality, that's where you get that's the that's the potential moment of of a disintegration. Well, that is the disintegrative moment because they're experiencing some cognitive dissonance. They've just said that they supported this this statement that Trump allegedly said. They find they find out that not only did Trump not say it, but Hitler said it. Hitler, who they've been, again, just programmed all through life to hate for good reason. And and so, okay, cognitive dissonance. So where, what am I going to do with this? And again, they... You're lying. <laughs> exactly, you're lying. So they they didn't take the like the route that Ilan or your professor took, Jane, of like sitting with that for a minute and trying to learn something from it and reflecting on it. No, they it, they took the automatic route, where and it, and it it was it results in some kind of comedic but um, like really illogical nonsensical results, where okay, so I don't support Hitler, but if if Trump were to basically write Mein Kampf, I'd support Mein Kampf, like and it would be a great book because Trump wrote it. It's all about Trump, and that's the thing that determines like that's the 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 value or the the standard or the measure that they're using for for how they discern reality and that's it which is a t- and it's a totally false one there's it's got no basis in any kind of reason or and so that just that brings me to the thought of you know what is it that these people what what is drawing them to Trump in the first place what is it that's really motivating them to to want to support him you know i mean because a number of commentators have, have pointed out that you know this, he's this clownish buffoon like Hitler was that not enough people took seriously and that the people started to rally around and I mean what is it is it this like is it this pathological hunger I I, I think I think it's his words he he has a lot of words he he knows a lot of them. He has he has some really good words. He's got the best words. He's got the best words. <laughs> well, that that very question actually, um, as answered by uh, Shane and Harrison, uh, in part is also responded to in a recent article by Chris Hedges, um, in the piece that we carried on SOT called "The Rise of American Fascism and the Revenge of the Underclass." Um, he kind of identifies all of these uh, individuals who are emotionally uh drawn to trump as a as an underclass as people who are given permission to uh and freedom to hate uh to embrace fascism they're outsiders and uh they're characterized by uh actually being in isolation of a lot of the political processes and and societal norms um or healthy norms, uh, as we would conceive of them. Um, he quotes Hannah Arendt, uh, who says that the fascist and, com- and communist movements in Europe in the 1930s, quote, recruited their members from this mass of apparently indifferent people 
whom all other parties had given up as too apathetic or too stupid for their attention. The result was that the majority of their membership consisted of people who had never before appeared on the political scene. This permitted the introduction of entirely new methods into political propaganda and indifference to the arguments of political opponents. These movements not only placed themselves outside and against the party system as a whole, which is really well illustrated by Trump in many ways, they found a membership that they had never been reached, never been spoiled by the party system. Therefore, they did not need to refute opposing arguments and consistently preferred methods which ended in death rather than persuasion, which spell terror rather than conviction. They presented disagreements as invariably originating in deep natural social or psychological sources beyond the control of the individual, and therefore beyond the control of reason, which is what we're talking about here today. This would have been a shortcoming only if they had sincerely entered into competition with either parties. It was not if they were sure of dealing with people who had reason to be equally hostile to all parties. So, um, you know, these individuals are are so outside of, I think, you know, this capacity to think critically, as you were saying, Harrison, and to and to use reason, uh, because they're so overwhelmed with emotion and identification with what Trump represents to them, um, that, you know, there's really almost no kind of speaking to them. There's no reception or receptivity to uh, to the other argument, to another piece of information, to another uh, narrative or mapping to reality that um, that uh, presents an alternative um, to what they've been presented with. And uh, something else. Well, at that, that point where you know t- uh, Trump is tapping into um, you know this this population, I, I think Hedge Hedges really nails you know the the issue when he's talking about, you know, that these Americans want a certain kind of freedom and it's a freedom to hate. Like they're, they're so boiled over with anger, you know, and, and the anger in and of itself is justifiable, um, in, in, you know, what many of these families are experiencing, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, just economic exploitation and, you know, trying to get by and, uh, you know, just understandable frustration, but you know he he channels that in a way where it, it, it's towards this hatred, and it's it's come to that point. And um, go ahead, Gordon. Well, I was just you you talk about the they want the this permission to hate, um, and that that makes me think a lot about the America since nine eleven and the dramatic changes that we've gone through. Um, and I think about, you know, in the neuroscientific research, they talk about, you know, you associate anger with something enough times or you produce enough anger that um, people start to feel hate towards whatever object they're angry at. And, you know, there's reason to believe that, you know, that that mood can persist, you know, that that ang- you keep initiating enough anger, you know, towards Muslims, towards immigrants, towards Republicans, towards Democrats, you know, towards everybody. It's every, you know, everyone, it's either anger or fear, anger or fear. And, you know, you creates like an emotional economy almost, uh, or it, you know, it, it affects that we have an emotional economy. It muddies it, it fills it with hate and fear. And so these people have been brewing in it 
for so many years, the ones who have been watching Fox News and who have been listening to Bill O'Reilly, who have been listening to this, you know, crazy hate radio where they just, you know, basically all they spew is hate and, um, you know, these pathological spellbinder types that know how to, you know, gather an audience that's, you know, that, that wants to hear that, that is, you know, sort of pathologically inclined. And so it seems like, you know, they, they want permission now to to actualize that. Mm-hmm. Like it's been brewing and brewing, and now it's coming out of the oven. Yeah, they want permission to go beat up on, you know, some 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 Muslim guy or, or, or girl or, you know, whoever. And yeah, I think it's um you know, it's it's the those emotions, like you said, that you know, they're paired with with a, a, a target. Um, you know, the, this frustration that, that people inevitably will, will have, you know, it can't be directed at the people who are actually responsible uh for, you know, the uh the economy and, and, and the situation that um many families find themselves in. So they have to associate it with a a target group, which, like you said, will be you know Muslims and you know and and they're they're seeking you know that it's it's the end result is yes these people have to die, like that's that's the 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 solution that that comes about over and over in history is yes we have this target who people a group of people who are responsible let's kill them and like that that's you know. Nazi Germany, and you know, and we're seeing it today uh, on such a massive scale. Um, you know, it, it's really horrifying to think what what will come. Yeah, it's it's sort of like uh, you know the uh, the redirect exercise only in reverse. There's this uh, default um, uh, way of thinking uh, on certain things that we're being presented with here in the U.S. and and largely in the West uh, that is self-reinforcing and growing. And and you really have to, uh, if you've only been um, kind of exposed to that type of thinking and and those streams of information, you really do have to make an effort, uh, for instance, to read a website like SOT.net and challenge all of your assumptions, your biases, your preconceived notions and all of these things that you have just been going through life assuming were true, uh, but which are turn out not to be. And, um, you know, I, I think one of the really useful things about SOT in particular, uh, especially as we look at these issues um, and, and a host of others, actually, is that uh, there is this kind of uh, consistency uh, that that we're finding among a whole other set of people who are looking at information uh, and helping us to map reality uh, in terms that are very different from from what we get in the West. And I I think uh, we talk. I remember this conversation reminds me of Lobachevsky talking about people and when they're impressed. Um, in whatever way, you know, they, they come to value power. Power becomes the primary value because that's they're going to be their way to restore, um, the you know, whatever conditions to what it should have been, you know, to what they should be. Uh, ignoring, you know, what all the real problems, you know, just power um, is itself the, um, you know, the highest virtue. So, uh, and, and you think about it, I mean, you know, when 
in the cycle of polarization as pathological people start to move into 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 positions of power i mean they we've been watching them exercise this that, that we've been watching them and they've been you know basically uh you know monkey see monkey do type scenario for all of america to see power is its own uh privilege you know you don't you don't have to obey laws it doesn't matter if you know you the mayor poisons an entire city you know it doesn't matter leaked emails show they they laugh about it it doesn't matter if there's uh you know this just destruction of the economy and everyone and then you know the rich get away with you know tons of money and everybody else is just left to you know suffer you know it's just power for its own sake and people i think you know they become conditioned to that and they think you know they see someone like trump and they probably just automatically assume this is my chance this is my chance to be a part of this power, this, you know, this is my totem pole. I'll, ra- I'll rally around it with all the other people. And, and it's, a, it's like a, it's a, it's, it's almost like a survival thing. You know, it's a, in a very bizarre and twisted way. It's, you know, their way of, of, uh, of trying to, um, to make it, if that makes any sense, or if that gives them just too much credence to that whole, you know, thing. Well, it's like their way of, uh, of coming in from the cold. Because one of the things that when we were, um, you know, figuring out what we were going to talk about, we were having discussion and just relating this kind of world dynamic, the social dynamic to to just individual personality and emotional things that go on with people. And one of the things you'd said, Corey, was something like um, these seeking behaviors. So, for example, when if you're too cold, then your body naturally will seek uh, a, a warmer environment, and it's just this this regulatory thing that's going on. So, and all pretty much any kind of sensation or emotion has this kind of um, purpose-driven dynamic to it, a process. So, if you're angry, well, the way to the, the way that anger plays itself out is that well, you get angry because you've you've lost something or something's been taken away from you, or your um, your goal has been uh, an obstacle is put in the path of your goal. So, the anger is to remove that obstacle. Or if you're afraid, then then the the object, the purpose, the 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 way to fulfill that dynamic is to either run, fight, or or freeze, right? So there's there's these programs basically that we run. These are emotional programs. So when we have someone like Trump, it's like, well, what's the what's the program? What is the what is what is people as a whole um, seeking? Like, what is the what is this world making their bodies seek? So the, it's obvious there's something. There is something wrong. There is a program that's being played out that sh- that does have a solution. But like you said, Ilan, I think I think what you meant by this, you said um, that this is almost like redirect in reverse, because the way I see it, it's like the there there's this bubbling cauldron of emotional discontent, and what people like Trump do, what the spellbinders do, is they redirect that in in a direction that's that suits their own aims. So they they essentially exploit that. So what Donald Trump is doing is he is exploiting the um, the discontent and whatever feelings and um, and feelings of either oppression or just apathy that just individual Trump supporters are feeling. He's exploiting that for his own ends, which will eventually lead to like what we what inevitably happens is that polarization process, like we saw in Nazi Germany or in the the Soviet Revolution. That's that's what happens. So they are directed along this path that won't get them what they want. Again, it's that road to nowhere. It's that it's the search for the Holy Grail that doesn't end there. But there's a lot of 
kind of human resources that can be put towards that aim totally unconsciously. You know, when I think about uh, what Trump is, um, it just seems like he is the perfect manifestation of this time and place. You know, the the, the very end of this uh, this this American fascistic empire, and it's uh, it's kind of not that the U.S. hasn't been fascistic in many ways uh, over the past 150 years. It has been, uh, but it just seems that. Uh, everything is culminating into this kind of um, climax of an orgy of of uh, destruction and uh, exploitation and xenophobia and um, and his level of discourse, his the things that he's saying, who he is, you know, this kind of you know uh, shyster, used car salesman, uh, real estate. Uh, mogul, reality TV personality, uh, demagogue, uh, you know, uh, all of these things. I mean, if if you'd written a, a novel about, um, about, you know, this time and place, or, you know, you read books by Philip K. Dick or uh, by Octavia Butler, science fiction books, and, and you have figures in those books that are so... Uh, so analogous to Donald Trump, it, it it's just, it's really, it's quite inc- incredible. He's such a two-dimensional, he's so obvious um, in his... Uh, the cartoon. He is a cartoon. Uh, and and, and of, the, of the most frightening kind. Um, so, uh, you know, it's almost as if the people of the United States and the West have somehow conjured him up out of their... Out of their uh, out of their most, <laughs> you know, <laughs> collective, darkest, you know, psyche. Uh, you know, what what else can you say about the guy? Made manifest. Yeah, uh, you know, I think I think part of the the what people are seek, seeking, you know, and I th- I think this goes to you know, uh, it's basic it's a basic fundamental drive is that you know we seek stability, and you know these the this anger and frustration that people feel, you know, that can be a disintegrative process. But they want to seek stability, and Donald Trump, you know, as a uh, in typical psychopathic fashion, you know, projects this image of stability. Mm-hmm. Like that's what psychopaths do. They they have this this uh, very stable internal structure. There's no doubt within them. There's no, you know, they 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 they, they portray themselves to you know hold, be very successful and hold a lot of power and. Um, and, and people will latch on to that because you know they're they're feeling that inner tur- turmoil, and so they uh, bond themselves with these psychopaths. I think you can see it in the the slogans, and in one of the things that one of those people in the clip we played said, she'd said that oh you know he, Trump's got a lot of money and he's going to use his money, and she put this emphasis on the word money, like okay so Trump's got a lot of money. Well obviously a lot of Americans wish they had more money. So not only does Trump so Trump gives them everything, right? He's he's the the ideal American. He has no self-doubt. He's a powerful man. He's got lots of money and got a lot of words. He's got a lot of words. <laughs> and you know, people like words. They like hearing words like make America great again. Um which is another thing. So make America great again. So he's projecting this image of okay, of greatness and and in his own ability to make America great, which of course implies that America isn't great, which is true. And I think that's what a lot of people are 
are thinking and feeling is that they see that that America isn't great. In fact. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, uh-oh, America's not great. We need to be great, so... Yeah, yeah, and and so they they support this guy who's this kind of epitome of American values, which are essentially like the lowest sort of values, and which only which can only lead to complete and utter disaster. Well, something else uh, that she said, which was pretty interesting to me, is um, that uh, you know he would be willing to lie to us for our own good, Some, yeah. something along those lines. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know I thought, God, you know how do you how do you get how how do you? How are you so shameless about uh, kind of being accepting of being lied to? Well, you could see you could see her her discomfort when she was saying those things. So you could see the narrative coming up, like when she was when she was, you know, because she didn't like what what when she found out that this was Hitler, you know, and she was she she was she could see you know a a uh, a slight struggle going on within her, but t- still she was still tied to Trump, so it came back came back to Trump and, you know, how, how great he is and how much money he has and, you know, all, all that nonsense. Um, but uh, when, right after we introduced that clip, Harrison, you, you know, you mentioned there's no, there's no discernment. And, you know, I'd like to kind of get into that, you know, how, how do we develop um, discernment? And you know, I was thinking about this a little and, you know, it, it's not, it's not it's not an easy thing to develop i think you know and uh and i was thinking about it in terms of of experts in, in different fields cuz you know you have you know some amazing minds who can really look into and and dig into and find answers to um you know answers for you know various subjects that they specialize in but when it comes to other fields you know they can be totally clueless so you know, uh, this expert can seemingly have some discernment in in a particular field, but how do you develop that um, in uh, a, a greater capacity where you know it can it doesn't necessarily just apply to a specific thing that you've built up a lot of uh, information on? And that reminds me of that book, Defying Hitler, uh, and I can't remember the author's name right now. Is it Hoffner? Sebastian, Sebastian Hoffner. Hoffner. Where he talks about uh, the ability to smell the the lies, he he could smell the lies in the air, you know, from the the Nazi regime, and and you know, so you you think of discernment and kind of having a taste for things that are true and being able to smell the lies, so so to speak, or at least like an intuition, you know, that some tells you that okay, something's off. I need to I need to think more about this. I need to dive deeper into this. Uh, is that what you're talking about? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, intuition can be kind of a, a, a touchy thing because, you know, people can feel uh, that, you know, uh, their intuition tells them that Trump's great, you know. So so our, our intuition can be, you know, really muddied sometimes. And I think it takes a lot of training uh, in order to develop a, a, a proper intuition, if you call it that. Well, I think that humans are very compartmentalizationable or <laughs> they, they, we can, we're we're able to to specialize in such a degree that we can like even just look at our bodies you can get a a, a bodybuilder who will just he can theoretically just work on one arm and he'll have like a huge left arm but a totally skinny and puny right arm or you know he won't work on his legs and so he'll have, he'll have these pencil legs and this giant upper torso and you know shoulders and arms and i think our our minds are the same way in that, um, like when you have these experts, I think 
you know, I, I've thought about this too, and I, I don't know if I'm if this is right or not, but it's kind of the only answer I can come to at this point is that just from my knowledge and experience in college and university, if you just look at the the way that scholars start out, they start out as students, and most students start out, you know, after high school, they go into college or university, and they they enter this kind of general program with no real clear idea of what they want to do. And they may have a clear idea, but if, if they do, it's like, okay, well, this is the job I want, so this is these are the courses I'm, I'm going to have to take to get there. But when you're thinking about, like, or when you're talking about academics, like specializing in a particular field of, um, like, science or some kind of some kind of field where they do research and have to figure stuff out and put and, you know really analyze data and fig, and uh, put it all together and draw a conclusion from it a lot of these people just start out kind of aimless and just find themselves in whatever subject you know they did well at or whatever one they kind of feel you know oh well, I like that course more, more so I'm going I'm going to go in that direction and so eventually um, you, like it is hard work to to specialize in a field like that and you have to do a lot of reading and a lot of research and I think that it's just um, um, the fact that they're able to, to develop some kind of discernment. It's just, for me, it seems like just a natural product of immersing yourself so much in, in one particular field where you're confronted by so many facts that it's almost a foregone conclusion that you're going to, to find some aspect of truth in it because it'll, it's just staring you at the face because you're so familiar with the material. Now, it didn't start out with this general kind of... Um, aim for, for truth and meaning and, you know, I'm going to get to the bottom of everything and I'm not going to let any of my personal biases get in, get in the way. That's not, I don't think that's very often the case. And oftentimes it's, it's actually the, the complete opposite. That's where you get um, the, the scientists, for example, that just c- produce completely fraudulent results. They, they make up their results in order to get published and to, 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 to um, you know, become more prestigious and get, get better positions and get tenure. Like they, they will take completely underhanded and anti-truthful methods in order to get there, so that, that there's that too. But so then, when you have that person who's really trained in that field, I don't think that they've yet really kind of made the decision on a deep level to look for truth everywhere. Like they can they can see a little bit of truth, maybe maybe not in their particular field, because there are tons of researchers in every field who just go completely in the wrong direction, and that takes other people to point that out but um if you i think it's a it's a kind of like a fundamentally different thing for someone to have this kind of um kind of just totally life encompassing aim to mm-hmm. to to look for truth and i think that the like when we're when we're talking about discernment i think it is difficult naturally um but that the first thing that that you need is is a really kind of clear idea and acceptance that you do have biases and biases will accept you and you're going to be wrong about things because i think that like when i when i watch a video like with those trump people i i just want to ask them like um i, I want to ask them how many beliefs do you think you have like, just give me a number like even if it's like okay well 10 maybe maybe you've got 10 beliefs which is totally unrealistic because we have you know, thousands of beliefs you know, from the most minor things to the to the biggest questions about life. But let's just, you know, put a number on it. Okay, so you've got maybe a hundred, a hundred beliefs. Now, how many of those beliefs do you think are wrong? That you're actually wrong about that? And then I just want to see their faces when I when I ask that question, because I'm pretty, pretty darn sure that, first of all, they've never asked themselves that question at all. 
and that the, the default answer without having answered it or asked it of, the, of themselves is going to be zero. Because people go through their lives as if everything they, they think and believe is right. I mean, it's just, it's just the natural way of doing it. I mean, I, we all do it in a sense because like I, I don't go around thinking oh well you know I'm really proud that I'm that I'm holding all these false beliefs and I'm wrong <laughs> I'm wrong about all these things this is just great no we we want to be right about things but the problem is that we want to be right about things that often makes us then convince ourselves that we're right about things when we're actually not so the first question to ask or the first thing to really see, let seep down into your bones is that there are things that you are wrong about right now the, there's no question about it. That's the first kind of thing that you've got to accept. And that, so when you get into, into discernment, so, okay, well, how do I know what's true then? If I've got, you know, one person telling me one thing and another saying this, and, oh, I believe this, well, maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, another imp- very important thing about discernment is to be comfortable with uncertainty, first of all, because people really want, it, it's like they feel, well, if I'm wrong about something, if I'm wrong about this, then something really bad is going to happen to me. It's almost this religious belief that I'm like, I'm going to go to hell. And, and uh, so if, oh, so, if, you know, when you have people first questioning maybe their, their religious beliefs or what they grew up in their beliefs about God, to think about, to think about, oh, well, maybe I'm wrong about God. Maybe that idea about God is wrong. And maybe, but wait a second, um, I, that might mean that I go to hell if I believe that. So uh, I think we may have a caller. Uh, so I'm going to go and check and see. Uh, hello, caller. Are you there? Just listening. Hello? Okay, great. Thanks. Start. Well, that was very, really interesting, Harrison. Um, and, you know, what I heard you say, basically, is that, you know, we all kind of need to become our own scientists. Mm-hmm. We all need to be thinking about how it is we think. Uh, we need to... Um, we don't need to do any of this, but uh, obviously, if if we want to um bind to truth or or map reality to something that's closer to uh what exists objectively uh then we have a little work ahead of us um there is a a site uh intropsych.com i was just reading this this morning it was kind of interesting um and uh the title of the essay was model building or mapping reality and um, the author of the site begins by saying that uh, in a book titled Scientific Literacy and the Myth of the Scientific Mind by Henry Bauer, he offered three metaphors to sum up the activities of scientists. Uh, and maybe this will be helpful in, in, in applying that to ourselves a little bit. Uh, so what three metaphors did Bauer use to describe the activities of scientists? The puzzle. Scientists are largely motivated by puzzle solving. They want to explain things that are strange or unexplained. They gain satisfaction from achieving new insights into how things work. The filter. Scientists start with lots of, lots of different ideas, particularly in frontier areas where there are puzzles to be solved. Many ideas are eventually disproved. Scientists try to filter out misleading and false claims. The map. Scientific theories are like maps. They preserve information about selected portions of reality. Like maps, they are schematic, incomplete or skeletal, but extremely useful in particular situations. The map metaphor is potentially very deep. It can be used to draw attention to several important facts about scientific theories. 
not even the best map is complete. Our theories never capture the full complexity of any system in the universe, nor are they intended to. No model contains as much detail as the system being modeled. So, like, you know, when you were talking about having um, beliefs and, and uh, this desire, this want to be right about all of it, uh, that that would seem to be running in contradiction to uh, what a real scientist does, and that is to um, to have a basic curiosity for the sake of truth, period. What is true? What is not true? Uh, and and if you could even um, include a sense of playfulness to the whole activity, uh, you know, why not? Um, uh, you know, finding out things for the sheer fact of knowing what is true. Uh, I think it. Um, I think it gives us something. I think it. Uh, I think it helps us along and prepares us for um, for finding other things that are true. Um, and, you know, like your analogy about the weightlifter, obviously we want to exercise our, our legs as well as our upper body. Why? Uh, Why? <laughs> which, which means, you know, and the analogy is we want to kind of have an eye on several different things. We don't only want to be authorities on, uh, or not authorities, but we don't, we don't only want to be well-versed necessarily on, on one particular thing. We'd like to be well-rounded. Um, and one supports the other. Uh, one builds on the next, um, you know, to use Sod as an analogy. Uh, I really like science of the spirit, even though my particular interest right now is in puppet masters, these two different sections of, of, uh, you know, articles on Sot. Um, but, you know, hopefully, uh, one is supporting of the other. Yeah. I, I think the, um, like when we're looking at specialization and experts in you know particular fields, it it really stinks that I think it it's also a very Western thing to you know have this um, uh, myopic focus on on you know particular things. Like Harrison said, you know we're we're generally compartmentalized, and you know that in itself can actually I think limit uh, insights into you know your own field. You know, going into other fields and looking at the dynamics and the patterns mm-hmm. uh, in other fields can can you, know, you can kind of tease things out and apply those same dynamics to you know what's going on in your own field and, and discover new insights. Um, and I think you know, getting back to you know this uh, uh, you know why um, these experts you know are can get off course. I think it can go back to uh, this ego that is built from. You know, have from achieving some success, and um, and and then you know they 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 think that since they, and, and I'm not just saying they, you know, I'm, I'm applying this to uh, human nature. I think uh, when when we have these successes and and these uh, when we develop um, you know a, a a particular field of knowledge, you know, it's easy to uh, translate or transpose that that idea that, you know, we're, we're great at this to we're great at everything, you know? And, and so, you know, our, our opinions on uh, things outside that field, you know, maybe it's, it's really funny because, you know, we, the same processes that went into developing that expertise aren't necessarily applied to your opinions, those opinions on other fields. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- there's not that same building of, of knowledge, and um, you know, I think this this uh, looking at many different things is, yeah, and kind of the the, the basis for the show uh, for you know how sought is used uh, to be able to look at the world and all its very many um, pieces and dynamics that are going on and, you know, and learn from, you know, what's happening in, in, in these various categories and to connect the dots between all of them and to, to kind of get a, a, a larger picture. And I think that in itself, once you gain, you know, uh, knowledge from, you know, psychology and history and current events and politics and what's going on in society and, you know, pathology, you know, all these very many elements all very, you know, are, are intertwined and, you know, building them all up, um, they, they, with each other, that, that knowledge base. And I think like that's, that's kind of a fundamental thing with building discernment. I think it's, it's really interesting to see happen when um now i'm 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 thinking about a particular dynamic like when you see when you have a researcher or someone who comes out of a particular field who kind of makes a breakthrough a breakthrough and realizes that kind of everything they thought they knew about their field was wrong so um just a few examples like i think of richard dolan who was a historian and then he kind of got into ufo's and he's like oh my god there's actually a, a ufo thing going on here or you might think of uh lear keith who wrote the vegetarian myth? Who was like a hardcore vegan, and then realized her own, her entire vegan worldview was was wrong, and it was you know she should actually be eating animal fat. And um, but yeah, I can I can just list off a ton of examples, and you can find them in pretty much any field. So you can find them in history. You've got the the people looking into like Old Testament research, and then you had like uh, John Van Cedars and Thomas Thompson come out in the in the mid seventies and kind of totally take away the entire basis of what we thought we knew about the history of, of early Israel. And and so things just, these they're kind of like these little mini paradigm shifts within every field. But what's the, the interesting part about that is to see these people, um, or, or, you know, people like them, not necessarily the individuals I mentioned, but when, so, when, some, when someone like this looks in or kind of has this revelation about their own field and how how they were wrong about the almost the most fundamental things about what they thought they knew about maybe medical science or physics or philosophy or whatever but then when they're confronted with with other ideas pointing out that um well just that they're they're kind of contemporaries the people just like them who have found the same have uh, made similar discoveries in their field it's like oh well um you know that's just bogus because it's almost as if they they think that, well, you know, I've made a really big discovery, and it's like it's it's that that um, one in a million shot, right? Everything, you know, I I have a a pretty good belief that we we pretty much know everything, or we've got a good idea of what's going on in the world and in all these different sciences. But I just managed to be the the, the person that found the one the one thing wrong with with the whole system. It's a it's a big jump, I think, for a lot of people to then to then make so many other jumps and say, hey, wait a second, we're actually wrong about pretty much everything. All of our, our standard beliefs in every field are probably wrong. So and, and so it, it can get to the point of being actually like funny when you have UFO, researcher, UFO researchers who are really big into UFOs and who kind of won't even, uh, 
won't even touch like parapsychology with a 10-foot pole. It's like, oh, well, that's just nonsense. Or the parapsychologists who are like, oh, UFOs, you know, that's just a bunch of fantasy, <laughs> right? And, uh, and it's, it's kind of an extreme example because you've got those two kind of uh, out-there fields, but you find it everywhere. So you'll have, you know, New Testament scholars who won't look into things about the Old Testament, or you'll have researchers into politics who who will see, like, the 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 absolute corruption and and evilness of one particular country but then they they can't see it for another or they'll demonize uh, uh you know someone who's actually doing quite a bit of good it's just uh, so contradictory and i think it's that's just it's kind of one of those symptoms of specialization or compartmentalization where um we we've only got there's there's like a threshold for how much how many sacred cows you're willing to you know take out to pasture uh, when you're, you're talking about the the researchers and uh, and you know make these radical discoveries and and I was also uh, was thinking about how they're treated then you know by other researchers in their own field and the kind of rejection that occurs uh, as it's like well no nah, I don't think that you know this is too much for us we have our sacred cows you're you know you're no longer allowed we no longer want you at, on, in our conferences. You know, and you kind of get exiled, and you know this disintegrative process that can uh, that can occur. You know, for uh, for people in that situation, but then also for other people in making similar discoveries. You know, just in their own personal lives. Uh, you know, just you know, in families where all of a sudden you realize, oh, this person is like that. You know, you can, and you know, this person is not a you know, this uncle or whoever isn't a, a good person, and you make this discovery, and then pretty soon you're you know you're exiled, or you want to uh, you know you're with a bunch of friends and they they like to drink all the time, and you but you don't really you, you make a discovery, you realize I don't want to drink anymore. It's not part for me. And you get you know exiled and. Um, and you know that's that's a painful. That's not easy. You know, it's you know we're hardwired to to want to maintain our relationships with friends and family, and you know it, and, you know there's a there's a degree of faith in there that you that you that you take when you know you kind of ask yourself, well, how much do I really love the truth? You know, how much am I really committed to the truth? And you know, what is the truth? You know, I, and you just you know you you go on this process. Um, and it does sort of, you know, there's that point where you just, you know, there's that dark night of the soul where you, you're just like, I have to question everything. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing, right? Because these uh, the lies that we're told and the lies that we believe, you know, they're they're also very much tied to one another. You know, it's it's um, you know, in in a very similar way that you know we need to look outside. Um, you know, various subject areas to, you know, discover truth, you know, a, a larger um, uh, and objective view of things. You know, the, all, the, all the lies that we're told are very much in, interconnected with one another, too. And once we begin to question one thing, you know, well, then that means, yes, you have to – also, this is tied to this, so I have to question this now, too. And that's a it's, – it's a big process, and – you know, uh, not everybody is going to want to undergo that that process. Oh, and you know that that leads me to this quote from P. D. Ospensky. Uh, it's from his book Tertium Organum, the Third Canon of Thought, a Key to the Enigmas of the World. So he writes uh, that the fate of that greater part of humanity, which will prove incapable of growth, depends not upon itself but upon that minority which will progress. And you know, just you know, letting that sink in that, 
you know, if if we're able to do this, and you know, we need to ask ourselves: are we are we willing to? And yeah, who who is making that choice? Um, because I think it does largely come down to you know free will and the choice to to um, to go through that process and to to question things and. Not everybody wants to make that choice. Yeah, it's something that has to be really valued at all times. And, um, you know, we we affirm the value of that choice by uh, by engaging the process in, and allowing ourselves to question things, even the process itself at points, uh, when it might not, might not be perfectly clear, um, you know, where... And this is really the thing. I mean, you know, uh, we're we're so automatic in so many ways. There's a security in that, and um, it feels insecure, uh, for lack of a better word, to take that next step into the unknown. Um, uh, to um, to receive a bit of information that we didn't expect to receive necessarily. Uh, it's like walking a labyrinth. It's like it can be in any case, um, but we can apply lessons we've learned from previous walks through the labyrinth, through previous you know dark nights of the soul that we may have experienced, uh, moments of uncertainty, moments of um, disintegration, moments of um, of, of struggle, uh, and say you know I, I've been through that before. Uh, and yes, this is a different set of circumstances and perhaps a new piece of information, but um, I can, you know, I can work with this. I've, I've worked with prior pieces of information that were uncomfortable and, uh, and I can apply those lessons or, or that muscle of will towards this new experience. Well, that, uh, that makes me think of, you know, the, the whole idea of, of, mapping to reality and and just like a concrete example in terms of you know our economy and we you know if you are willing to put in the work to you know to figure out you know what's going on and to kind of create your own mental map of what the economy could be like in 3 or 4 years then you know you're going to your behaviors will naturally probably fall in line with that and you know you'll you won't necessarily invest in that you know three hundred thousand dollar house that you'd always wanted that you were programmed to want all of these uh, cues and signals for success you know getting the the phd or you know having the family and the two and a half kids and um or all of these cues that we that we have that you you know that you feel like you you need in order to be successful and to be valued as a human being you know not saying that any of those are bad whatsoever but just saying that once you have this information you all of a sudden you're creating like in your mind you're creating a different future and you're able to you know put all these connect these dots and start to see okay so this is, you know, it's not, basically, it's not what we're told it is. You know, obviously, the economy is not functioning well. You're in this, you might start searching. You might start renting books. You know, you start look, Googling these crazy terms like credit default swaps and figuring out what the heck they're, 
what the heck they really mean. And then you start to, you know, you start to get a new emotional reaction towards it. You know, so you bring your emotions in line. So rather than an emotional program um, that isn't yours, you kind of you reprogram it yourself so that you kind of you make it an ally of yours. If you if you know what I'm saying, so that you're seeking behaviors become more in line with your own personal view of the world, which is objective, compared to your seeking behaviors or emotions that are given to you by, you know, people who don't have your best interest at heart. Well, and uh, just coming back to, to sought as a, as a method, you know, to, to use to do these kinds of things, I think that's really just what it can be used for. Um, just to to kind of set this up, I read recently uh, an anecdote about George or Georgi Gurdjieff. Um, he he wrote a book called Beelzebub's Tales, which is really kind of arcane and obscure. It's t- it's really hard to understand. The sentences are like a page long. But uh, apparently, at one of uh, like a meeting where they were reading reading a chapter from this book, someone asked him, "Oh, well, you know, should we believe what uh, what what you've written in this in this one chapter?" So Gurdjieff laughs. And he, he, you know, he breaks out laughing, and then he says, and I'm closely paraphrasing here, he says, the basis of belief is doubt. And I think that's really something great to live by um, because it, it gets into the idea of discernment um, and, and, because, and that, that anxiety about being wrong and the, and the acceptance of uncertainty, being comfortable with uncertainty. Because we are confronted with so much conflicting information and it's hard to know who to trust. So, well, the easy thing really is just to start out with doubting. So when you hear something, immediately doubt it and then look into it if you've got the time. But don't get attached to something that you haven't looked into. Mm. And I think that's really the, the problem is that as as human beings, we are pretty much programmed to just accept something on the, the flimsiest of evidence and uh, without looking into it for ourselves at all. So just start out with that doubt, and but uh, but then there's a, a potential. Um, uh, you you can take that in the in the wrong direction because if you think about like a, a diehard Trump supporter, well they'll they they might read something that goes against their deeply held belief, and then they'll doubt that. They'll say, oh well, what's the evidence for that? You know, I don't have to believe that. But it's not coming out of any kind of. Um, it's not coming from the right place. It's not coming from a willingness to or a, a desire or a, a drive to find out what the actual truth is. That doubt is simply there in order to reinforce a previously held belief. Now, what I think that one of the great things about Sot is that you can come to Sot and get those kind of emotional shocks that will that may challenge your your previously held beliefs about something, and that that kind of it creates that discomfort. It creates that cognitive dissonance. It add, it may add that extra bit of information that that makes you say, well, wait a second. If if that's true, then maybe this is maybe what i you know that puts that puts things in a whole different perspective i have to i have to relook at what's going on but uh but i've basically got a, a whole lot of work ahead for me ahead of me because i've got to look into this stuff um it's funny you brought up Facebook's tales because one of the um things he says in the beginning is that the uh purpose of the book is to basically disavow or destroy uh, all the beliefs that you have or all the notions that you have to be true uh i'm sure he you know he said it in his own his own way of you know being mentation or or whatever but yeah i i think that's also um you know one of the main 
purposes of SOT that people can utilize is, you know, it, it basically can um, destroy those a lot of the the, the lies that, that that were told. And I remember when when I first started reading SOT, you know, it wasn't. Um, I don't think you know I had read much news. And it didn't come across to me as, you know, a regular news site that you go just to, you know, uh, get up to speed on, you know, what's going, you know, current events or politics. Um, you know, the the objective was to find the truth and or to, yeah, there there was a there was a, there's an element of discovery in it, and and you know there were many things that, you know. I, I came into conflict conflict with, um, especially when I first started reading, that you know I was like, oh no, this 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 can't be accurate. Uh, one one of my big ones in in you know the at that time, which was years ago, was uh, uh, the that the idea that climate change, you know, wasn't um, wasn't what it was purported to be. That global warming was you know basically a scam, and you know, at the time, it, you know, I, I was, I think I was involved with uh, some Green Party stuff, and <laughs> maybe, and, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> and and I was like, you know, you know, you, you go through all this black and white thinking, and you know, uh, oh, you know, the this must be coming from you know, uh, oil companies, or you know, how can you support? You know how how can you not support? Uh, you must be pro pollution. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and. and and you, know, you have all these things running through your head, but um, I, there was an element that I had, uh, you know, of trust uh, uh, for SOT and the, and the material that was being put out. So, you know, I, I, I'd sit with it and I'd read, I'd read what the, you know, what the um, the articles were saying, and you know what the details were, and then you're blown away, <laughs> you know. Then it's, it's it's like this is you have that 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 point where that belief is is destroyed and it's it's a you know it, it, i think that the toughest part is the beginning when you're first faced with um you know uh looking at the these con- conflicting stories and but when you know when you i think if you can get past that and kind of dig into things then then you know it may be uncomfortable but you know you kind of get over the hump a bit it's only uncomfortable at first, because yeah. then it just gets yeah. fun. Yeah. Well, I, I might have <laughs> something to say that uh, is uh, – it's a process, I think. And I've talked about this here uh, several times on The Truth Perspective, You know, my, um, my coming to terms with Zionism in particular, uh, having grown up in a, in a household of Zionist thinkers and believers, uh, and, um, and, you know, what you were saying, Shane, about, you know, um uh earth changes and greenhouse gases and um global warming was you know that was for me zionism it was i was presented with information that was really super uncomfortable and i knew it was uncomfortable but my my only saving grace at the time before i was able to assimilate it and uh, and find other information that mapped to a, a different reality from what I understood um, was I was honest with myself about it. I was like, sheesh, I am really uncomfortable with this. This is, I have to sit with it a little while, admit that I, you know, it, it, it's almost a little overwhelming 
and and come back to it later. And uh, and that's what I did, bit by bit by bit. And um, you know, it's a process, eighteen nineteen years in the making. Uh, but um, actually, Harrison, I I would say that now seeing the uh, the, the truth of things has become. Uh, for all intents and purposes, fun. Uh, there's a, a kind of a, a picture that is so mechanical and predictable, and that I could I could practically you know write the next line, uh, knowing knowing how things are in a certain way, and um, and there's a desire to share that now that I see it, now that I know it, and now that I've experienced the process of coming to this point. Um, so. Yeah, so it's been very useful in that respect for me. Uh, I uh, well, that's just you know, just you you saying that has got it got me thinking about uh, the fact that you know when you're working on SOT and you know you're you're really engaged in this kind of thing and and you know you're listening to SOT radio and everything. You uh, uh, one of the most uplifting things is you know can be conversations, the the insights that, you know, are sometimes just spontaneous and that come out as, you know, you're, you're really critically trying, you know, you're trying to understand someone who's on a higher level than you, you know, and you're putting yourself there and you're like, I don't quite understand what they're saying, but I'm going to try, you know, and it's that, it's, uh, it's like that, uh, like you're, you're connected there for a second and, and you, by making that effort, you kind of, you up, you're uplifted a little bit. You get a different view of the world. You, you see their view from the higher perspective and it puts a lot of things for you into into perspective, you know. And so then when you go back down to whatever level you are at, you feel that you have that experience in you of what a higher perspective is, how someone thinks more critically, much more critically than you do. And or they have a completely different uh, attitude about the exact same phenomenon that you're both talking about. And it gives you this uh this powerful motivation to to search more and to to try and understand what it is that um you know what's going on in the world yeah i think that you know engaging in that process and then um you know getting results from it you know once you kind of break through uh you know your own biases and uh the you know strongly firmly held you know beliefs and and so on and you know you, you get on the other side and you know it's like this whole uh world uh, or, or a new capacity to think about the subject appears and so and then you can you know you can take that and apply it to to other things and you know i think that when you know when i was reading saw early on you know i i would get results and then you know there was a, a natural uh uh trust in in you know the editors that that I felt that that would allow me to kind of um, go through that process. I think um, so. You know, SOT can be. You know, it, it's. I it's. I think it can be its own like feedback uh, network. Um, you know, we there's there's the forum, but not everybody is going to engage on the forum. You know, the the forum is for you know, I think people who you know really want to engage in on a, on a personal level. Um, but you know, there's millions and millions of people who read SOT, and not everybody is going to come to the forum. But it can still be used uh, as a means of you know getting feedback about you know your own uh, your own stuff and the the beliefs that you've come to accept. Absolutely, Shane, and and that's something I wanted to comment on as well. 
you know, lest you think that side editors have reached some kind of pinnacle of knowledge, uh, there's a lot of robust feedback um, about uh, the information that gets put out there, the comments that are made. Um, you know, everyone is in the process. Hopefully, everyone who who is working on side is in uh, some stage of the process of of examining uh, their thoughts regarding things, of um, uh, of choosing. Uh, and prioritizing the types of information that uh, that are getting shared with others uh, as important to know. Um, so it's uh, you know that that in and of itself is a is a learning process as well. And um, you know I I think having worked on it for the past couple of years and and written a little bit for it, uh, it's been very rewarding and not easy by any stretch. Um, but uh, but really darned interesting to be a part of. One other element that I'd, I'd add is that yeah, I think that it's very easy um, to you know get caught up in uh, your own stuff uh, when you know when you're you're doing this like psychological work and the thought perspective of you know also looking. Uh, to the external world and what's going on, you know, globally, like that's an essential piece, and uh, you know that's that's missing from a lot of uh, methods of you know uh, personal development, and it's it's really essential because you know it for one, you know, it, it can bring you out of the um, the places where you get stuck in your own garbage, and you know it can make you see. And, or can help you see, you know, uh, that there's this whole world around you, and you know that, you know, you know, you you look at what what's happening in Syria, and you know, you see you see the pictures, and you know, you you can see the dynamics of what's going on, and it, you know, it brings you out of your 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 own bubble. Exactly. Uh, I think um, what Sot and Sot and sites like Sot do is they connect us to events around the world that um, we quite normally, uh, out of some normalcy bias, uh, separate ourselves from. And, um, you know, it's it's only until for a lot of people uh, very similar events are staring us right in the face uh, that they have some clue as to what other people have been experiencing for a very long time in other places. So there's an immediacy an urgency um, for this connection, uh, this understanding, this uh, empathy to be made with with the other, with those brown-skinned people who are all terrorists, uh, according to the Western media. Uh, you know, there's it's breaking through these um, manufactured perceptions. Um, you know, which brings me to a, an article actually we just put up this morning on Sat which was that a study shows that the New York Times portrays Islam and Muslims more negatively than alcohol, cancer, and cocaine. And basically this Toronto-based consulting firm revealed that uh, the New York Times, which, you know, if you know anything about the New York Times, it's this bastion of, of Western objectivity, right? It's liberal and it's, uh, and it's fair and it's all the news that's fit to print. Um, but just scratch the surface of this rag 
and uh, it it is one of the most successful propaganda machines uh, in existence, and uh, and it's been around for a very long time. And uh, in any case, the gist of this piece said that um, uh, based on a sent on a sentiment analysis of online and print headlines spanning 25 years of coverage, the study found quote strong evidence that Islam Muslims are consistently associated with negative terms in New York Times headlines. And key findings pertaining to 2,667,700 articles include that 57% of the headlines containing the words Islam Muslims were scored negatively. Only 8% of the headlines were scored positively. Uh, And they compared this to... um, all other benchmark terms, Republican, Democrat, cancer, Yankees, Christianity, and alcohol. Islam, uh, Islam Muslims had the highest incidence of negative terms throughout the 25-year period. So, you know, there's this, uh, there's this filter uh, that, um, you know, it's ubiquitous, it's, uh, it's pervasive, and... Um, you know, its name is the New York Times and the Washington Post and the and CNN and and Der Spiegel and uh, and uh, Jerusalem Post and and uh, Le Monde and how many other media organs that um, that are uh, shaping the way that uh, that we view reality and and really doing uh, a whole number of people in the world an incredible injustice. Well, well, I just wanted to say one thing about um, <clears throat> this increasing, increasingly negative view of Muslims, and not just for the past 25 years, but I'm, I'm just looking at this from even just the past year or less, and the things that have happened in that time period. We, Of course, we had the attacks in Paris. We've had... Um, this whole rise and expansion of ISIS in Syria and Iraq. And we talked about it on the show previously. We had the, uh, you know, that thing in Cologne, Germany and New Year's and the, the response from that, which has been huge. And the whole idea of rape, rape fugees um, has kind of exploded on the internet. And then we've got the, the increasing, uh, the, in, the increasing popularity and um, and just I don't know the word accessibility or just in the news of these far right wing parties and groups and protests and the, the number of attacks on on Islamic institutions or mosques and things are, things are just getting worse and worse. But but when I, I just thought about it in a, in a different way the other day and I was I was thinking about it and and realized that if you look at who is most at risk from ISIS, it is not Westerners, it's not Europeans, it's other Muslims. If you look, because where is ISIS? ISIS is predominantly in Syria and Iraq. Who is ISIS killing predominantly? It's Muslims and Christians and just Arabs that live in the region. The, the, the body count, there's no comparison between the people who have died from from ISIS in you know outside of this 
outside of these select countries, you know, within Canada, the United States. So it's just it just just thinking about it in that in those terms just made me kind of realize how wrong the 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 belief is in the West and the the fear in the West. We see a Muslim and we're programmed to be afraid, you know, often like just like in the states where you know a white person walking down the street seeing a few black people might get afraid and you know choose to go on the other side of the street. Well, so okay, so you're living in a Western country and you see a Muslim and you're afraid and you're worried that they might be a terrorist. Well, chances are, you know, your life isn't in danger, like objectively, statistically. Statistically, you're going to be all right. And if anything, that experience should promote and bring out uh, an empathy for Muslims. Yeah. Not only because they are being increasingly demonized um, unjustly, uh, you know, billions of people, but because they are the ones being killed and tortured. And they're the ones like, under siege in these, in these cities in Iraq and Syria. They're the ones that have to deal with this. So, they, you know, they're getting, they're getting really the short end of the stick. They're getting both ends of the stick on this one. And I just think that that's that uh, that just provided me with a you know a bit more a bit more perspective I think on on the what's actually going on. Yeah, and I think that you know it it just it reveals the complete lack of a desire to fight and you know, ISIS and terrorist groups um, by you know, the states that uh, you know by the West that that. Um, that absolutely refuses to team up with these countries, you know, Muslim countries, to go and actually help them fight ISIS. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, you could, I mean, you could just talk for days on end about all of the all of the evidence that just piles up about all the you know, Western support for terrorist groups. But I think that you know, your the point that you make is is essential. Is that you know, Muslims are the the primary victim of of all of, of you know ISIS and uh you know all, all of these different moderate rebel rebel groups that you know like to chop people's heads off i mean it's just it, you know it it's it's just at the very basic level it's programming it's malicious you know fascistic genocidal uh propaganda and you know you walk down the street and do people realize you know oh you know my country's waging genocide today um you know or nobody it's it's not on the radar whatsoever you know it's just the the people have just just completely gone to sleep and and like you said Elon in in their nightmare here comes trump you know for all of us you know parading around one of the talking points that really uh gets under my skin is when you know you hear commentators say well you know why aren't the the muslims themselves uh, speaking out against or, or fighting, uh, you know, terrorism. And when you look at who's on the actual front lines, you know, the, the foot soldiers, you know, like Hezbollah and the Syrian army, it is that that's that's who is in the most danger and who are, you know, on the ground fighting uh, these these terrorists. I mean, I, and I'm not um, speaking down at all about the the Russian assistance. Because that that's been extremely helpful, but you know when it comes to hand to hand combat type stuff, you know it is the the uh, these groups, these Muslims who who are who are doing the fighting, and we don't get access to information on the ground uh, 
about what's going on in Syria, what it's like to live in a village that's under siege by just lunatic terrorist groups. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't see that. We don't understand what it's like to, you know, to to be the sheriff of a town that that has to try and somehow rally up a, a militia. You know, they call them militias. But I mean, you know, you got to rally up the people, the men, and everyone who is old enough and you know, ready to fight. And I mean, and that's what they did. I mean, numerous towns, you know, rallied behind one another and rallied behind Assad, despite the fact that they were promised, they were guaranteed they were going to be killed for doing so. And the U.S., you know, according to Russian diplomats, the U.S. went over to Russia and basically, you know, they were the main guarantee or uh, they were guaranteeing that. They said, you know, we're going to have ISIS in control of uh, Damascus by October of last year. Uh, and, you know, these people on the ground, you know, we just that's where that empathy comes in. That's where it takes you out of your petty problems that are in your in your own personal life, where you start to understand, you know, the the global perspective of what's really happening in this planet and how these, uh, you know, you for you want to call them the, the puppet masters, psycho elites, these parasitic um, uh, just pencil necks. You know, just ridiculous. I mean, what do they do? They just, they're not worth it. Look at what they do. Look at, you know, all these people suffering. And and now, uh, instead, since, you know, there is just the, you know, that sleepwalking towards the abyss, now, um, you know, now they, like you said, Harrison, are blamed for it. They, and they've, they've you know, try and make it to safety. When they get to a place they think is safe, they're blamed, they're called rape fugees, you know? They're 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 called a threat. I mean, it's I you know just imagine being just a normal uh, young man. You know, you're 18 years old. You know, you flee. You know, you flee. You you flee home, and then you go to Europe, and and you know nothing about you know these terrorist groups and their craziness until they are destroying your country. And now you know you could feel it in the air. You can feel what they really think of you. You know, when they look at you, you can feel it. I remember seeing a video on Sot not too long ago about a young man in a refugee camp who broke down because he broke down in tears and fell to the floor just telling this uh this refugee camp uh security guard he's just screaming fight me fight me fight me then why don't you fight me and you don't get any idea of what the security guard said to the young man but i mean you can almost feel it you know i mean he was on the he had a nervous breakdown and he was a bust down crying and what did the media that reported on it say that of course they said he was just probably lying he was just lying to make up a show well related to the um the stories coming up the uh, the clone sexual assaults uh there is uh, like 2 weeks ago it finally came out that there was only three out of the 58 suspects uh, who were arrested in Cologne that were actual refugees. Only three. Not 2,000 or whatever number that they, that ridiculous number that they initially said. You know, and, and I mean, the the majority were actual. It's, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. And, you know, it, it's it's looking at these details these facts and 
you know, the the seeing the actual suffering of of these people and seeing them as human beings uh that I think can, you know, work um against this mass bias that's being uh put on people. Right. I I think you're I think you're right about that and you know, we gotta make an effort to do that, you know. Um, because otherwise, you know, we're, there's so much propaganda out there. We don't, and for a lot of people, we don't know how easily our machine is led to believe something and we don't understand what our beliefs really are. You know, we're strangers to ourselves essentially. And, you know, there's, if you're not making an effort, an active effort to think otherwise, to believe otherwise, to understand, you know, what's really going on, the, you're in default, you know, you're just, you know, whether we know it or not, we're in default. We are, uh, we, be, we essentially believe what we've been told. Well, gentlemen, do we have any more uh, news stories that we'd like to cover for, for today? Or if not, I think, uh, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up and I'd like to thank all of our, our listeners and chatters. And don't forget to tune in tomorrow at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Behind the Headlines, and next week, Friday, at 10 a.m. for the Health and Wellness Show. So thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Hopefully next week we'll, we'll be using the new system, or we'll let you know.